me, me neither, right? So Jen and I purchased an older home some years ago now. We, we've been in this place for a long time. And uh, with the goal of restoring its 1924 home, just a small little place, we're still there. And uh, I think we've been there like almost, I don't know, 30 years or something now. And we're still restoring it, right? We're, we're still in, in that process. We have some, some things to do. But we have learned a couple things. And if you're someone who restores stuff, whether it's a house or it's a piece of furniture, you learned a couple things, right? Number one, restoration does what? Restoration takes work. It takes work, number one. Number two, restoration requires a huge level of commitment. Man, you got to stay with this thing, right? you got to keep sanding or you got to keep working. So it takes work. And it, and it takes commitment. But built in this whole idea of restoration is hope, right? So restoration is founded on hope that something will be better. So this thing that you're working on, this thing that you're committed to, will, will be better when you're done. It will look like you want it to look. And some of you are there right now. In fact, our, our, our theme, if you go to our website, our, our, our message to the community here is Gateway is a place where you can experience community and find hope. Experience authentic community. We're not perfect people. We're all working this thing out. But you can find hope. You're not going to find hope because, like, as, as a community, we have the, you know, really good programs. Hope is not in the programs that we offer, even the things that we do. Hope is founded in Jesus. And that's our message. Experience community, find hope, hope in Jesus. Something can be better. Restoration takes a first step followed by a second step. I've talked about first step, second step now for the last number of weeks. And so I took a first step in restoring a rocking chair of my mother's that she rather liked. And she's passed away now like three years or so. And so uh, I took it apart. Well, and that's about where I am. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, you can just tell the pieces there. It's sitting in like, I don't know, a hundred different pieces. So I took the first step of dismantling it, and now I'm trying to figure out what the next step is going to be. Now, I've tried to put it together, and it, it will happen. It, it, it will take place. But left at the first step, it will never be what it was intended to be. Are you with me? It takes work and it takes commitment to be what a rocking chair is supposed to be. Ezra, the book that we're diving into, might be one of those books that you, would, you, you may have, some may have difficulty in even finding in the Bible, much less reading it. And someone said this morning, I don't think I've ever heard anyone teach on the book of Ezra. And I, I can't recall a time where we really taught on, on the book of Ezra, and it's kind of an easy book to kind of skip over. It's kind of right, you know, if you go to the book of Psalms and then back up a little bit, you're going to find it there. But as we dive into the book of Ezra over the next couple of weeks, and I want to encourage you to, to read Ezra and to get into it. So I'm reading it, but I'm also listening to it. So numbers of times this past week, I think three times, I have just put on Ezra on audio and listened to it as one continuous story. Jen and I did again last night as we were preparing dinner. It takes about 45 minutes if you don't double up the speed on your Bible reading app, right? But just listen to it. And, and I'll tell you what you will begin to discover is hope. Ezra is a book of hope and restoration. Something 
very challenging has happened. Something has taken place. But God has not forgotten his people. And he restores hope and he works through people who turn to him. This is a critical theme of Ezra. God is a God of restoration. God is a God of hope. God restores people who turn to him. Some of us are going to find ourselves really in the story in a number of ways. Some of us will find ourselves looking, look, I, I just don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to do. I'm looking for hope. I'm grasping on to hope. Maybe you're in that place right now. In fact, I have a question for you. Here it is. Have you ever been in that place where you just felt like God has forgotten you? Or at least that he's not paying much attention to you? And it's okay if you raise your hand, because I, I have been there. I think we've all been there. God, I don't even know if you hear me when I pray. Like I'm grasping, like the chair is apart. It's in, it's in pieces. And I don't know what the next step is. And so we go to the Lord and we pray. But we go like, God, do you even hear me? Do you know who relates to you? First of all, God, of course. But the psalmist in Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Maybe you're beginning to feel that way. God's forgotten. And, and uh, God didn't even know where I am. But God has not forgotten. He's not forgotten his people. And he's not forgotten his, his promise. So let's dive into the book of Ezra. I'm going to give you a little background this morning. A little history. Um, of what's, what's behind this book of Ezra. It's ten chapters, so it's a, it's a short book. So what's behind it? Well, just remember, 70 years. So everybody say 70. 70 years is behind the book. The book. Why? They're in captivity. We're going to talk about discipline in just a second. The Israel, Israel is in captivity. Why? Because they sin. Their sin of idolatry and their rebellion over hundreds of years, despite the warnings from God, through his prophets. So Ezra, or uh, Israelites, are in captivity. What we're going to see in the book of Ezra is the coming out of captivity in fulfillment to God's promise. But while in captivity, God's using Babylon as a tool, as his agent to judge Israel for their disobedience. God used the Babylonians, this group of people, to carry the remnant of Israel into captivity out of their native homeland. Now, I intentionally use the word tool. So, a tool is what? Something that we use, something that we're familiar with, and we understand has a purpose. So, it, um, perhaps you've said to your student or someone has told you, <clears throat> the right tool for the right, right job. The right tool for the right job. So, if you're going to hammer something, you're not going to get a screwdriver, Right? It's not the best tool. I've tried it. <laughs> right? Short a hammer. Just grab a, something. The right tool for the right job. And here we see God using ba ba uh, the Babylonians as a, as a tool to serve a function. This is called discipline that we're going to see in just a moment. Parents use certain tools, if you will. To discipline our kids, right? So some of you use this thing called time out, right? So go sit on the stairs, you know, like for 30 seconds. <laughs> okay, 30 minutes. Go sit on the chair, whatever. It's a tool 
You love your kids, and so you're using this tool as a discipline to teach your student, teach your child something. God used as a tool Babylon for his purpose to discipline Israel. And we're going to see the results of the discipline in Ezra of a people who take a step toward obedience to the Lord, repent and follow him. So they're responding to this. And they're turning to him. To understand Ezra outside God's hand at work in judgment or the discipline of a loving God in his promise is amidst two key foundational truths of Ezra. I'm going to say it again. To try to understand Ezra, the book of Ezra, as you're reading it, reading it as we're talking about today, outside of these two foundational truths is to miss key points of who God is and his characteristics. Number one, God disciplines those he loves. He is a God of discipline. Hang on to that. Some of us are asking that question, and it's messing us up. Why, why would God judge or discipline whatever word you, to those people he loves? And it's messing some of us up. And my question is this, why would you as a parent discipline your child? Because you love them. Number two, God always fulfills his promise. He's a God of promise. So he's a God of discipline and he's a God of promise. Let's dive a little bit more into discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he what? Loves and chastises or punishes every son whom he receives. We discipline our children for disobedience out of love. So if they're going to head out in the street, walk out in the street, right? You're going to say, no, don't do that. I told you not, don't touch the burner, right? And sometimes we even use this statement as parents, and it's really meant, I, it really is heartfelt because I've done too, right? This hurts me more than it, and I think that's true, right? As We don't like to discipline, but we do out of deep love. Some of us are under his hand of discipline, maybe even right now, and you're, you're here in person or you're listening, and maybe we've not seen it as that rather than taking a step toward him in obedience, we keep running away from him. And a God of love, I believe, will continue, and the Bible says will continue to discipline us until we turn to him. Remember, every journey begins with a what step? A first step followed by a second step. Some of us need to take that first step and turn back to God. God's discipline is always motivated by love. And so that's what we see behind the book of Ezra. God is disciplining the Israelites for, for, for being disobedient to him. Number two, he's a God of promise. We're going to see that. You're going to see that today. In Jeremiah 29.10, written during the time now when the Babylonians were destroying Jerusalem and hauling the remnant off to Babylon, during this time, 70 years of captivity, listen to what Jeremiah 29.10 says. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a, everybody say it, 
hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, Then I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Do you see what God is saying? I've done this, but I'm going to bring you back from that place I sent you into exile. This restoration would happen on God's timeline and as he promised, he's a God of discipline, he's a God of promise. God would fulfill his gracious promise to restore these exiles to their land. So this 70-year exile, a time of judgment for their sins and rebellion, would be completed as part of God's plan to give Judah hope and a future. The larger purpose of this time in exile this time of judgment or this time of discipline was to force Israel back to her God. What we see as punishment, God sees as a plan for his good. That's true as we read Ezra. That's true in your life and it's true in my life. Sometimes we say, God, you're just this, you're just a God of punishment. No, it's, they are plans for God's good in your life and in my life. Now the book of Ezra, we're going to dive into it records two separate time periods directly following the 70 years of captivity or 70 years of, of, of judgment. Two time periods. Ten chapters, two time periods. There are five key players in the book of Ezra. As you read through Cyrus, king of Persia, number one. Darius, king of Persia, chapters three to six. Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Chapter 4, and then chapter 7 through 10. And what you will see is like, you're going like, what happened here? Because in chapter 4, Artaxerxes is stopping the work. You're going to see that in a moment. And in chapter 7 through 10, he has a change of heart. Zerubbabel, chapters 1 through 6, this covers the first return under Zerubbabel and covers like 23 years. Remember I said it? Ezra covers two time periods. So this is the first, chapters 1 through 6, under Zerubbabel, who is leading a remnant back um, to Judah um, with his edict from Cyrus, king of Persia, to rebuild the temple. And then Ezra, chapters 7 through 10, picks up nearly 60 years later um, when Ezra leads a second group of exiles to Israel and spiritual and religious reform are established. So I want to talk to you today about three kings, one God. And I hope that even that just settles deep into your heart. Three kings, one God. Three rulers. How many gods? One God. Three foreign kings of Persia. One God. Three human leaders. How many gods? One God. Let's take a look at what this one God does. Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We just read Jeremiah, right? And God said he's going to do this thing. So by the word, by the mouth of Jeremiah, 
might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Hang on to that for just a second. So that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Who stirred the heart of Cyrus? How many gods are there? One God. It was the Lord. 150 years before Cyrus lived, this is huge. 150 years before Cyrus was alive, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. Listen to it. Isaiah 45.1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, are you ready? Whose right hand I have grasped. To subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. This is a Cyrus whose spirit was stirred up in him. Just back up a chapter in Isaiah chapter 44 verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose. Cyrus, king of Persia, only thought he had a good idea. He may even feel, felt like he was fulfilling some, of, some, of, some other purpose. But it was who that stirred his heart? It was God who stirred the heart of Cyrus. God whose right hand I have grasped. I've grasped his hand. He's going to carry out my purpose. Three kings, how many gods? One God and one God moves on the heart of this king to fulfill his purpose. That's powerful. We look in the world today and we see human leaders doing this and human leaders doing this. Do we understand that as followers of Jesus, there is one God. And he rules king of kings and lord of lords. I'm just thinking Cyrus goes like, I'm feeling really good today. I think I'm going to do something. It wasn't him at all. It was God who grasped the right hand. Of Cyrus. The second king I mentioned is Darius, also known as Darius the Great. Look how God used this king. So, construction of the temple resumed in his second year, and just like now, just like anytime God is moving, there's resistance. So, do you expect resistance when God is on the move? Say yes. Yeah, because there will always be resistance when God is moving. The answer is yes. In your life, and in my life, in the life of this community, in the life of his kingdom being built. And there's resistance here. In chapter 5, Tataniah, the Persian governor of Judea, wrote a letter to Darius in an effort to turn the king against the Israelites and stop the building. So, the restoration was beginning. Here's an effort by the governor of Judea to stop what was happening. So he writes a letter and he gives quite a, 
quite a description. Part of it in Ezra chapter 5, verse 8, he says this. This work goes on diligently and prospers in this hand. So let me just paraphrase it this way. Like, So King Darius, we need to check this out. I think we need to stop it. In Ezra chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if it seems good to the king, this is Tatnai, now this is his letter. If it seems good to you, king, Darius, search, let a search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon, back where they were in captivity, to see whether a decree was really issued by Cyrus the king. Now, I just shared, right, we just talked about Cyrus. We just talked about how God moved on him, had grasped his hand, and Cyrus issued this decree that they were to return to start building. And now Tatnai is appealing to Darius the king and saying, look, we need to just check and make sure this happened. Uh, to see if this decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And then let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. Now, this is Tatnaya writing this letter. Remember that prophecy, the, the action of God, right? I, I'm certain that these dissenters now, as they're reviewing what was going on, were thinking that the outcome of their appeal now to King Darius was going to be quite different. So Darius orders a search of all the records, and he finds a decree, and then he answers the governor, Tatnaya, and this is really good. And I just have to read it to you, right? Just listen to the letter now. Back to these dissenters, those who are trying to stop the work of God. Just listen to it. Now, therefore, Tatnaya, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozanai, and your associates, the governors, who are in the province beyond the river, are you ready for this? Keep away. Do you love that? Look, every time I get to that part, I go, keep away. Now, they're reading this letter, and I'm sure they're going like, ah, shoot. Let the, Darius now, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover. I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. Are you ready for this? See, like, this is exciting. Like, you just got to get into the book of Ezra. You got to get into God's word because it's so cool. Listen to what happens. Now, you got the picture, right? I, I know I keep saying it, but you got the picture of what's going on. This group of people are trying to stop the work. Here it is. The cost. This is like. It's like someone saying, look, the cost of your home restoration, right, someone else is going to pay for it. Wouldn't you love that? So Darius says to Tatnai, the cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Do you love that? And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, Wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Do you see what's happening? 
It gets better. I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. Do you love that? <laughs> Can you just see Tat Knight when he's reading this letter going, ah. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. I guess it's pretty easy to say that didn't work out so well for those who were opposing God's work. Three kings, one God. Three kings, one God. The God of hope, the God of restoration, the God of promise. Artaxerxes is the third king. We're introduced to him in chapter 4 where the Israelites are facing opposition from, again, from the people in surrounding lands. And this opposition continued into Artaxerxes' reign. And initially, and at the request of adversaries, you'll read this, he orders the work to stop. However, in chapter 7, in what seems to be the best explanation, Artaxerxes has a change of heart toward the Jews and allowed the construction to continue. He had a change of heart. Who do you think changed his heart? Three kings, one God. Are you losing hope? Do you, you see what I want you to see so, so badly is that this one God who worked on the hearts of these human leaders, of the, this one God, this is the same God we serve today. This is the same God who is alive today and who is in all and over all. This God of promise then is a God of promise today. This God of hope is a God of hope today. After a decree where supplies of silver and gold were given and a blessing on the work of the Lord, we read this in Ezra chapter 7. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing, Ezra's responding now, into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. This is Ezra now. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Three kings, one God. It's such a part of the story, here's what we see. God works through people, even kings. Are you discouraged today? The God of hope is at work in your life and my life and the life of his church today. God works through people, even kings. Number two, God always honors his word. He is the God of a promise. When he said he will never leave you or forsake you, he will never leave you or forsake you. You might feel alone. You are not alone. And number three, God forgives and God restores. Some of us perhaps need to take that step back to God. 
And maybe we've involved ourselves in something not honoring of God or displeasing to him. And we keep walking away. And we need to turn back to him. The book of Ezra is our story. This is why I want you to read it. This way, turn it on. If you're driving, put it on audio. Listen to it. It's our story. It's your story. It's my story. Why? Because we were born into brokenness. We were out of relationship with God. You and I were, were born into this state of sin, of rebellion. Our lives had been marked by sin and rebellion against God. But there is great hope and restoration because God is a God of forgiveness. And he will not turn his back on those who seek him in repentance and brokenness. I want us to just think about that for a moment. In just a few minutes, we're going to move into communion. So I invite you online to get ready. We're going to share. We're going to celebrate the God of promise who said he would not leave us alone, who walks with us each and every day. Are you, are you living, are you, are you feeling hopeless because your eyes are on human leaders? Kings, whatever. Are you feeling that way? You don't have to. The same God who was at work in Ezra is the same God today. The same God who moved on the hearts of these kings is in control today. And we celebrate that because he's brought us into relationship. The brokenness that we were born into, he has made a way out of. Through trust in him. And so we're going to join together in communion. So if you have your communion here in person, online, we use these onesies here. But they're just, they're just elements, symbols of what Jesus has done for us. His body was broken, right? That we might be made whole in every way. Aren't you thankful that he is the one who brings healing? He is the one who brings wholeness. The question is, in who do you place your trust? And who do you place your hope? Because human kings, people will fail you and they will fail me and we, because we're human. But our hope is in Jesus, the God who restores, the God of promise. He is the one who gave his life. His body was broken and we might be made whole in every way. So we're going to receive that in just a moment. And there we're going to receive the cup. His shed blood so that we could be in a right relationship with him. And then when we conclude communion, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite many of us to take that step back towards him. Maybe we have found ourselves, it's like going this way, God calls us to come towards him this way. Is that you? I'm going to invite you um, to lean in to him walk in obedience to him. So as we do, the God of restoration in Ezra is the God of restoration today. Let's take the bread together, shall we? Thank you, Jesus, for healing and thank you for wholeness. Let's take the cup, shall we, as we celebrate forgiveness of sins. Jesus, I thank you today 
God of promise. The God of hope. You restore us in right relationship with you. As we gather around today, that we're reminded when we bring our brokenness to you, you are the God who heals. And we celebrate that. We sing about God that like, like no matter what comes our way, no matter what comes our way, we stand victorious because we are people of God. Amen. Will you say it with me? I am a person of God. Let's say it together. I or we are people of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Regardless of what comes, we're victorious. Amen.